in respect of the statement you just made with that song, if, if you are of a person who believes in Jesus Christ and, and you know that you know that you know that he's your Savior, would you just offer up a prayer to him right now and say, Father, because I say I will stand with you, I want you to speak to me this morning. Just go ahead and take a moment to do that. Father, I, I join my brothers and sisters in this prayer, this heart of unison. We desire that you would speak to us. So we invite not only the activity of your Holy Spirit, because we know your Holy Spirit's here, we can sense it. We know he's active in this auditorium. We, we invite the teaching that you will give us. Father, what we ask for is more of you. We want to encounter you so that it changes us, it shapes us, it, it gives us encouragement, it gives us strength. Not just for ourselves, Father, but for others who surround us, the people whose lives we can speak into. So I pray for my brothers and sisters that way right now, in this auditorium, that you will use your word to speak into our life, that we will gain more of you. Father, that we would indeed be known as people who take a stand for you with our arms high and our hearts abandoned, holding nothing back from you because you held nothing back from us. We pray for this strength in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 27? I'm going to take you back to where we left off at last week. It's uh, just really a privilege for me to be able to work through the, the book of Acts. I love what we get to do here at New Hope with expositional teaching. If you're not familiar with that term, it, it simply means we take a passage of Scripture and we pull the meaning out of the text. It, it's called expository in, in that I get to expound on the things that God has written down. In this case, 2,000 years ago, the, the passage that we're looking at, at 2,000 years ago is from Paul in Acts chapter 27. It, it's so rewarding for me to be able to do this with you. And here's the reason I do it this way. So that you can encounter God. And your encounter with God helps you to grasp his power toward us. Do you know that God has power toward you just beyond your salvation? Not just your salvation, but beyond your salvation. There's power that God has for you. Let me, let me take you to Ephesians to remind you of that. This is a prayer that I have for you, and it's not unique to me. I prayed for you this morning. I prayed for you yesterday. I prayed for you this past week. I pray for you this way every single week, the same way that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. Let me show you this passage on the screen, Ephesians 1.18. He says literally to the church that he was pastoring, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance? He's talking to believers, right? He says the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? If you're a believer this morning, God says there's power just waiting in reserve for you. And it comes from me. You're going to see an example of that this morning in Acts chapter 27. So I'm, I'm going to take you back to a verse that you haven't seen in 42 weeks because this is our 42nd week in this study in the book of Acts. In 42 weeks ago, I had you in Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we saw, Paul, or we saw God say something specifically to the apostles. It, it, look with me on the screen, what Jesus said. Jesus is still on planet earth. He has not yet ascended to the Father. And he said, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we want to really focus this morning on the word witness. 
a witness for Jesus. What does that look like? You're going to hear that from me over the course of the spring as things unfold. After we finish the book of Acts and we move through the Easter season, I'm going to do a, a short series teaching on, uh, it's called Your Story Matters. And I want to really encourage you along the way to use your story about who you are in God to begin influencing people around you. Maybe you already do. I just want to encourage you to take it to a whole new level. You already are a witness, church, whether you know it or not. If you're a believer in Jesus, people are watching you. If people have any suspicion whatsoever that you are a Christian, your friends are watching you. The question is, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with them watching you? Are you modeling Christ before a watching world? I want to really encourage you to tell your story this spring. So let's watch how Paul tells his story. I don't know of anyone who has taken a life verse from chapter 27. It's a really unique passage of Scripture, so pray for me this morning because it's 44 verses, and it's a story about a 2,000-year-old shipwreck. It's a fascinating story, but you don't necessarily look at it and say, well, there's a verse for my life. I'm going to memorize that one. They, they just don't do it because of the way that it flows together. So we have a challenge before us this morning. How do we find encouragement or strength from this 2,000-year-old shipwreck? Well, for one, it's included in the canon of Scripture. And God says all Scripture is profitable for us. Right, church? Oh, come on. There's more than two people here. God says all Scripture is profitable, right? Do you believe it? Okay, God says it's profitable, so we should really pay attention. If he includes something like in this in here, there's got to be a reason. Well, in this final portion of Acts, what we get to see is God deliver Paul one more time. And it's the ultimate purpose of the book of Acts. In this case, Paul is delivered to stand before Caesar for one particular reason, for his witness. He gets to say who Jesus is. He simply gets to tell the truth about who Jesus is. It's the major theme of the book of Acts, the witness for Jesus. Let's go into verse 1, and it starts this way. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So the governor, Festus, has decided it's time for Paul to go to Italy. The centurion is now put in charge. His name is Julius. He's of the Augustan cohort, which means he's of the imperial regiment. He works for Caesar. He answers to Caesar. So he has taken custody of Paul, and he has responsibility to deliver this high-value prisoner over to Caesar. And we understand in the first-person pronoun there, Dr. Luke is back in the story now because you see him use the word we. So what you're about to read is an eyewitness story. Dr. Luke is on the boat with Paul. Verse 2, it says, and embarking on an Edramitian ship. Sounds like Star Wars, right? Edramitian, Ad, Ad, uh, Edramitian, doesn't really matter. They put him on a ship. Which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So Julius is on board. He puts the prisoners on board. Evidently, this is a smaller ship, a coastal ship, and they're returning to their home port. These smaller vessels would hug the coastline, and they would go in and out of ports, unloading and loading cargo. And the, the centurion's intention is to transfer the prisoners over to a much larger freighter. You and I do that when we go to smaller commuter airports and maybe jump on a commuter airplane to fly to Lake Chicago, where we might board a 777 Heavy to fly transcontinental. That's the exact same thing that we see this soldier doing. He's taking Paul into a prisoner transfer program. But when they put into 
Sidon, apparently they're loading and unloading cargo, and Paul's granted some time to go visit the Christians who are in that city. Now, this speaks right away to a really high level of confidence. Caesar's guy, the centurion, is releasing Paul to go into the city to go visit Christians, even though he's a prisoner. Paul has obviously earned their respect. It wouldn't be offered if he hadn't earned it already. Why does Julius do this in this case? Because he understands Paul. He understands Paul doesn't take advantage of people. People will trust someone they believe has the interest of others at heart. And that's who Paul is. He's got the interest of other people. He's not going to take advantage of the situation. Ultimately, this really high level of confidence that this guard has placed in Paul plays a big role in this story. If you're interested in little details in the Bible, when it says in verse 3, he received care, that means Paul went to them for food and supplies because in the first century, when you went on a big freighter ship, they didn't provide you with three square meals a day, right? This is not Princess Cruise Lines. You've got to get food and bring your own food on board, your own supplies. Verse 4, from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us on board it. So this town of Myra is this common port town, and this is an area where the freighters coming out of Egypt would exchange ships and exchange cargo. So we're told they're put on an Alexandrian ship. According to verse 6, this is a really, really large freighter. Alexandria is in Egypt. Egypt is the grain community growing food for the empire. Egypt was sending grain back to Italy. So this is a really big freighter. In most cases, these grain ships were so large, they're well in excess of 100 feet long. And for a wooden sailing ship, that's a very, very big ship. And they weighed in excess of 1,000 tons. You do the math on that, you begin to understand this is a really big freighter that Paul's just been put on. Verse 7, when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. So you got this really big ocean-going ship, and it's having a difficult time. The winds are contrary, and it's made progress very, very slow. From Myra to Nidus is 130 nautical miles. It should not take many days for this freighter to get there. So that tells you a bit about how difficult this is. But Dr. Luke says it's many days to get there. So they're traveling along this southern coast, and they put into a place called Fair Havens. Why? Because they're weary. They're tired of fighting the winds, and when they get into Fair Havens, a discussion takes place. Now, Paul has earned so much respect at this point, he gets to speak into the situation. Even though there's a lot of people on board, they begin listening to Paul and what he has to say, but then the captain and the ship's owner, they begin to speak into the situation, as you see in verse 9. But ultimately, the centurion gets final say. Go with me to verse 9. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and, say to, and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now these ensuing events are going to prove Paul correct. They should remain at Fair Havens. Paul has already experienced three shipwrecks in his life. 
Somebody willing to read a verse for us this morning publicly? I'm gonna have you read 2 Corinthians 11.25. Somebody willing to do that? Put your hand up if you would. Oh, come on. One, I'll just stand here and stare at you. Okay, Keith's got it. 2 Corinthians, in other words, 2 Corinthians, right? (laughs) Some of you caught that. 2 Corinthians 11.25. Yeah. Thank you, Keith. Those three shipwrecks that he experienced, they happened way before this situation. Paul is not looking for a fourth time to be broken up in the sea, right? He doesn't want to spend another night in the day floating on driftwood out in the middle of the ocean. But he's not apprehensive just because of his past experience. His counsel is based on fact. You notice that Dr. Luke said even the fast was already over. What he's talking about is the Day of Atonement. There was a fast associated with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a celebration. Always took place in the end of September to the early part of October. There's a reason that cruise ships put their tickets on sale in 2016 in October and November, right? Because it's typhoon season. Nobody wants to be out in the ocean and the risk that they're going to be into a storm. Well, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. The fast is gone. This is a really, really risky time for us to be out on the ocean. So he's warning them there will be loss. Now, if you've been part of this study, you understand that God has already told Paul, hey, you're going to be in Rome. You're going to make it to Rome, Paul. But Paul's warning to them is, I'm making it. You guys might not. There's going to be loss of life if we keep doing this. Verse 11, but the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Somebody came to me after the last service and said, see right there, it's in the Bible. God wants us to go to Phoenix in the (laughs) wintertime. No, you've misread scripture. Okay, so the ship's owners and the professional sailors have a different opinion than Paul, right? Their sense is, Fairhaven is too small of a port to winter such a large freighter. We can't stay here. They know of another harbor. It's not far away. It's only 40 miles. It faces northwest, southwest. It's got better shelter. Now, the ship has been contracted by the imperial government, by Rome. So the centurion is now the ranking officer on board. He outranks everybody, even the owner of the ship, because Rome has contracted with them to move the grain. So he gets final say. Verse 13 When a moderate south wind came up, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close in shore. So the bait is this gentle southern wind. Looks nice, let's go. So they hoist the mains, lift up the anchors, and the ship leaves harbor, and the captain, I think, speculating, I'm just thinking, he scowls in Paul's direction. See, you were wrong, Paul. We've got good weather. Now, Crete is dotted with mountains. Some are two or 7,000 feet above sea level, just raging up above the island coast. And as the ship rounds the cape, these gale force winds blast down and hit the ship broadside. Verse 14, but before very long, there rushed a down from the land a violent wind called Yerakilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. 
Verse 14 says, they rushed, the wind rushed down from the land. It's the one Greek word I put in your notes this morning. You'll see it up on the screen. And, and it's kind of hard to pronounce, but it sounds like typhoon, right? Well, that's because it's the root word in the Greek language for a typhoon, typhonikos. In the Greek and English language both, it means the exact same thing. It's a whirling cyclone. It's caused from this clash of air masses. So they immediately come into contact with this roaring, violent wind. Now, these ancient ships were not built to sustain violent winds. There's no way this big freighter can do anything or hold its course in this situation. So Dr. Luke gives us this eyewitness sight. He says in verse 15, the sailors had to give way to it, meaning they brought down the sails and shortened them up, and they just let the ship drift along. 25 miles out of their range of where they wanted to be, they end up at this small island called Clauda, verse 16. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way, they let themselves be driven along. So on the southern side of this island, Clauda, there's some protection from the violence of the storm. And for the very first time, they're able to take measures to do something to help themselves. We're told they secure the, sh the ship's boat, which is the lifeboat, the right, the dinghy. The lifeboat was drifting behind them. This is the first chance they've had to deal with their own lifeboat. How bad is this storm if that's your first opportunity to bring in your only possible source of help? We're, we're told specifically they accomplished it with difficulty, according to Luke. And the next step they take is they begin undergirding the ship. Now, this is what I understand from reading archaeologist accounts of this period of time. Typically, when a big freighter went out into the ocean, especially at this time of year, they carried cables and ropes with them on board. And they would keep some at the stern and some at the bow. And teams of men would lower them over the back or over the front, and they would begin walking them to the middle of the ship. Then drawing them together, they would begin binding them in order to keep the boards that the ship was made together with tight so there wouldn't be any leaking as they smashed against the waves. And then on top of that, they're coming up against sandbars and shoals. That's the word Syrtis that's used here. Verse 18, the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned." So they're being violently storm-tossed. There's very, very little an ancient ship can do to fight against a violent storm like this. All they can do is bring down the sails. And the ship begins to develop a leak. How do I know that? Because they're showing the, throwing the cargo overboard. They're, they're beginning to get swamped. They can't take on any more or they'll sink the ship. So there's nothing left to do but roll with the winds, the piercing wind, the bouncing of the high seas, and he says, the stars are gone. The sun is gone. It's just covered by clouds. And there's no way to locate their position. What started out as what should have been just a few-hour trip, just a three-hour tour. <laughs> if you're over 30, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you're under 30, ask your dad about somebody called Gilligan. All hope is gone. It's just gradually abandoned. Dr. Luke writes specifically, all hope is away from us. 
Despair has set in. In the 1970s, some of you are old enough to remember a wreck in Lake Superior called the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, a massive freighter that went down in the gale storms of November. Not long after that happened, a really mournful song was written. Um, A guy by the name of Gordon Lightfoot put together a song. It was kind of an ode to the men on the Edmund Fitzgerald. And in the midst of the song, he has this little phrase that occurs. He said, does does any man know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? That that's the kind of despair these individuals are feeling. Minutes have turned to hours. There's no hope. All hope of rescue is gone. Despair is set in. You you and I can find ourselves exactly in those kind of situations when storms come. When, When all those kind of storms come against us, many times it's for the same reasons. Not every time, but many times it's for the same reasons these guys are facing a storm. Paul has spoken with wisdom into their life. He said, hey, I've been there before. I've been adrift at sea before. I know what it is to be in a shipwreck. This is not a time we should be sailing. The winds are contrary. Let's stay here. Let's go later in the spring. But they didn't want to listen because of impatience. Many times listening to louder voices, or in their case, they listened to the majority opinion, it got them in a lot of trouble, just ignoring the wisdom that God used through Paul to speak into their life. And those kind of storms creep up because we refuse to listen to good, sound advice. Let's move into the story, verse 21. It says, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. So the storm is at its height, right? But morale is at its absolute lowest, and all sense of direction is lost. No one even has a stomach for food. They don't want to eat. The ship is lurching. How bad is a storm when professional sailors don't even want to eat? That's a pretty bad storm. And in a moment like this, in that moment, Paul stands up. Now, I recognize that no one likes an I told you so kind of person, right? We just don't. And it looks like that's what Paul's doing in this moment. It's like, I told you not to do this, but it'd be wrong if Paul said that and just left it there. But he doesn't. He uses it to set them up to listen to him. They did fail to listen, but he takes them one step further. Because you failed to listen and now you can see I was right, you have reason to listen to me. So verse 22 That's really significant. I urge you now to listen to me because you didn't listen to me before. I urge you to keep up your courage. Their church is the role of a believer, a person whose confidence is in God. A role of a believer is to bring hope when hope is gone. You got somebody in your life this morning whose hope is gone? They feel like they're in a storm? They feel like everything is breaking up around them? You are a believer who can speak into their life to be the voice of God when people cannot see a way out. Individuals on this ship, I think, are exactly in that situation. And crises like this really allow us to shine. Dr. Wearsby, I love reading some of his stuff, but look with me on the screen at his quote. I just captured this one for you. Dr. Warren Wearsby said this, a crisis does not make a person. A crisis reveals what a person is made of. Absolutely right. Excellent quote. Let's jump back into the story. Verse 23. 
For this very night, an angel of God, this is Paul speaking still, for this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. And Paul no longer is quoting the angel in verse 25. He just begins talking to the ship again. Verse 25, therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Do you notice, church, that the strength that Paul brings into this situation is not man-made? He's not ginning it up from somewhere deep inside him. That's not what's going on. The strength that Paul brings into this situation is for one reason and one reason alone, because of God's Word. God made a commitment to Paul. God's promises can be trusted on to the degree that Paul, in the midst of this crisis, can speak into their lives. I want you to notice the two promises specifically that God made in this moment. The very first promise you see there when you look at the passage is that Paul will appear before Caesar. God said, this is the way it's going to be. It's God's purpose that Paul would be a witness. And God's purposes never fail, do they, church? Okay, we're going to do a lesson here on, on agreeing with the pastor. All right. It's God's purposes that they never fail. God's word cannot lie. God always tells the truth. Amen? Amen. Okay, so God said to Paul, you're going to stand before Caesar. My word does not fail. You will live. So because God has a commitment to his word going forward, God is also, second promise, going to give him all of the souls that are on board. God's word, when it goes forward, cannot be defeated. It may be a very, very long time since you've looked at the book of Isaiah. But in Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 11, God speaks about his character and his nature. Let me show you what he says about himself. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You and I can say things and have conversation all day long. We can hope that our words accomplish things. God says, when I speak, something happens, and my word will never return to me void. It always goes out and accomplishes what I intend for it to accomplish. Done deal. So when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's your God. God has made a commitment to Paul. The entire story turns on that comment. It's the turning point. Because the storm has reached its fullest fury, Paul needed to speak into this moment. If you've ever been on the sea in the midst of a storm, you can appreciate the terror that these people are feeling in this moment. Worst storm I've ever been in in my life, three years ago, I was up in Alaska with some friends off from the, the coast of Alaska in the Northwest Pacific Ocean. We were in the midst of 18-foot seas. I've never been in seas that high before. We're on a 37-foot ocean-going vessel, but I felt like a little dot in the midst of that sea. So when you're in the bottom of the swell and you're looking up and seeing seas 18 feet above you, it's very, very intimidating. But I'm looking at the captain, and the captain does not look scared whatsoever. So I'm thinking, okay, he's been here before. He knows what this is about. I'm confident we're going to be okay. And then off to my right, I look and see a small cruise ship that's coming out of the port that we had just left. 
And we're quite a ways off land by this point, and this cruise ship is almost nose and nose with us, and they're pitching in the sea. So on the bottom, they go up to the top, and then back to the bottom again, and then the captain looks over there and says, I wonder what they're going to do, because their passengers are not made for this kind of seas. You know, this is, this is very violent stuff. Only at that moment to see the cruise ship turn and head back to port, right? And so the captain says, huh, that's not good. (laughs) I kid you not, in that moment I'm thinking, what? He's starting to look scared. This may be really not good for us. Now, in those moments, they can be incredibly unnerving because there's few things that you would fear like death by drowning in the midst of the cold ocean. We get back to shore, and the captain said to me, you know, in 35 years of being out on the ocean, I've never been in seas that high before. I'm thinking, what? (laughs) Okay? If, If you've been in moments like that, you know the terror that these individuals are feeling, and it's in this darkness that Paul, as the representative of Jesus Christ, stands up and speaks into the trauma. His leadership shines brightly, and despair turns completely towards hope for one reason and one reason alone, church, because of the word of God. God said something's going to happen. It's going to happen. So Paul can speak confidently into the situation. So he exhorts him accordingly. If you're going to memorize any verse out of chapter 27, it's this one, verse 25. I just put an excerpt of it up on the screen. Verse 25 says, keep up your courage. Why? For I believe God. Not just because I have courage, but keep up your courage for I believe God. What's the next part? Because everything's going to turn out exactly as I have been told. Because God cannot lie. Amen? God cannot. So the focus is now no longer on death. The focus is now on deliverance, meaning there's a future. There's a rescue coming. You feel like you're in a storm today? Maybe somebody in your life feels like they're in a storm. Maybe they've talked to you about what they're going through. Perhaps it feels so severe, it feels like everything is about to break up. God says in that moment, hold on. You belong to me. Everything is going to turn out exactly as I said. If you haven't been encouraged in a long time by looking at Scripture, I encourage you to look at this verse with me on the screen. It says specifically, God's heart towards you. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Your God saying, don't look around. Get your eyes off from the circumstances. You feel like your society is falling apart? Look at me. Everything's going to go exactly the way I said it's going to go. Do not fear. I am your God. Now, Paul is also a realist. He's a person who can project what's going to happen because God told him, but he's also aware things are going to get bad before they get good. Before the final deliverance, there's going to be more difficulty. Verse 26, but we must run aground on a certain island. I'm thinking that's good news for you if you're on the ship, unless you're the ship's owner, right? You don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear your ship's going to run aground and be destroyed, but that sounds like good news because it sounds like maybe we're going to find land. So the stage is set for this really intense conclusion. Verse 27, but when the 14th night came as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. 
They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. So 14 nights since the departure, and they're still at sea. Does that not sound like a supernatural storm to you? I have never heard of a storm lasting 14 days. I'm just speculating with you, but I'm thinking Satan's trying to take Paul out. That's my guess on what's going on. I'll wait till I get to heaven to ask God about that. But this is really, really remarkable stuff that they've been in a storm for 14 days. Now, he mentions the, the Sea of Adria or the Adriatic Sea. It's not the sea that you're thinking of today, geography-wise, in 2016. The Sea of Adria was actually a, the description that they used for the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. So that's where they find themselves. After two weeks of terror, they begin hearing signs that maybe this thing's coming to an end. They surmise that they're approaching land, perhaps because they're hearing the crash of the surf. They can't see it in the dark, but they can hear the sound. They're approaching the island of Malta. Now, this is absolutely remarkable. This is God's providence, God's sovereign power. They've been adrift at sea for 14 days in a violent storm. And where do they find themselves? in front of a tiny map dot of an island called Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. Does God want Paul to get to Rome? God wants to preserve this guy so he can get there and be a witness. There was a really detailed study done of this particular voyage in the 19th century by a yachtsman. His name is James Smith, and he just made his living on the sea, and he decided to go to the Middle East and check this out to see if this was legit or not, because they couldn't imagine someone being adrift for 14 days at sea and ending up at the island of Malta. Well, let me take you to his quote on the screen. I've compressed all of his research down to just these two sentences. I wanted you to see it. It says, I ascertained the mean rate of drift of a ship of this kind in such a gale. The distance from Clauda to the point of Cura is 476.6 miles. At the rate as deduced, after carefully reckoning the direction of the ship's course from the direction of the wind, from the angle of the ship's head with the wind, according to these calculations, a ship starting in the evening from Clauda would by midnight on the 14th day be less than three miles from the entrance of the bay at Malta. How amazingly accurate is God's word? 2,000 years later, a guy is able to look at it historically and say, yeah, that's exactly the way it would happen. Scripture is incredibly accurate, church, even to the littlest detail. Jump back with me into the story, verse 29. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Now, according to history and to modern geography, there's this, this rocky promontory that sticks out on the northeast side of the island of Malta. It's now known as, as Point Cura, as you saw in the quote a moment ago. Apparently, when storm waves are crashing against this point, you can hear it from miles off land. The crashing of the rocks is very audible. Well, they hear it. So they begin to take soundings, and the first sounding is 20 fathoms, meaning 120 feet. And the next sounding is 90 feet. So with this rapidly decreasing depth and the sound of the breakers in their ears, they put out an anchor rather than smashing against the rocks, verse 30. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. So obviously, these sailors do not believe God can or that God will deliver them, right? So they decide to take matters into their own hands. So they begin lowering the lifeboat. 
Paul sees him and he says, what you doing? <laughs> Nothing. Hey, centurion, Gilligan's over here cutting off the lifeboat. And the centurion comes over and cuts the ropes. Now, it seems like a perfectly logical procedure. From a human point of view, you got a lifeboat, you're close to shore, of course you're going to use it. These are sailors who want to get away. We're not told why, but Paul says, unless they stay with us, everybody here is going to be doomed, except me, because I'm going to Rome. God said it, right? But everybody here is going to be doomed if the sailors leave the ship prematurely. So note this. This time, Paul has the respect of the professional on board, the centurion. Why? Because Paul has cared for people on the ship. Paul has spoken into their life. Paul is a person who cares about individuals. And the respect is so high, they go against human nature. And the centurion goes over and cuts the ropes of the lifeboat. Now, I'm thinking that's not what Paul intended, right? They look and say, well, what'd you do that for? It was more of like bring the lifeboat back onto the ship, but they cut it away. It prevents any further escaping. Nobody's going to get away now. Let's jump back into the story. Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn, look what Paul's doing. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. I just made a note to myself. You might want to write it down yourself in your Bible. I was just thinking this through. We're seeing a prime example here of human responsibility. God made a promise, right? God said there is going to be deliverance if you do what I said, but you've got to take human responsibility. Paul is bringing them the responsibility, saying you, got to, you guys got to nourish yourself. You're going to swim in a little bit. You've got to be strengthened in your body. So human responsibility walks hand in hand with the fulfillment of God's promises. You see that right here in this passage. Verse 35, having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. So Paul set the example, right? He begins eating in the presence of everybody. 276 souls on board. I'm just speculating, church. Many of them have zero relationship with Jesus. He's got a freighter ship that came out of Alexandria, Egypt. People destined for Italy. Some of them are on vacation. Some of them are working. But I'm thinking many of them are pagan. And in this moment, Paul breaks out the food and begins to thank God. What's going on here? People who are far from God take courage and strength from your witness, especially in times of trauma. How can you use this principle in the midst of your workplace, in the midst of your school environment? in the midst of your neighborhood? Is there someone that's going through trauma that needs to take strength from your witness? Don't easily dismiss that thought. Perhaps you need to speak into their life. Now the wording here that Dr. Luke uses is really prominent. He says he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. Sounds like the Lord's Supper is breaking out, right? I don't think that's what's going on here. The breaking of bread and the giving of thanks is a customary Jewish form of blessing a meal. So Paul is observing his customs of worshiping God in the midst of a predominantly pagan group. 
Giving thanks is our way of saying, God, we acknowledge your presence here. We may think of thanking God at the beginning of a meal as something just really perfunctory as kind of like a habit. But what we're really saying is, God, you are our provider. You brought us through. You met our needs. Paul's breaking bread, giving thanks to God in the midst of a stormy environment for 276 persons because Dr. Luke says they all saw it. There's no small detail. 276 souls are delivered from a raging sea. Why? Because God promised it. Not because they're clever, not because they're sharp, but because God was committed to it. What a difference it makes when one person has faith in God. One dedicated believer can change the entire atmosphere of a situation just by demonstrating their faith, making it visible. So you don't see Paul preaching Jesus there, right? He's not breaking out his Bible and doing a sermon. He's just living his faith out in front of individuals who needed to know there's hope, there is a future. Verse 38, when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. So their first step, right, is to lighten the ship. So it'll ride higher in the water. Next, cut the anchors free. Hoist the foresail. And they drive towards the beach. Verse 40, this is where it begins to end. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosing the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. Could be a script for a movie, couldn't it? This is great. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. So the bow is stuck. The stern is being pounded to pieces. No alternative but to abandon ship. Now the soldier's immediate concern is with the prisoners. Because if you're a soldier of Rome, that prisoner escapes. It means your life. Literally, they had to exchange their life for an escaped prisoner's life. So we find verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. So the dinghy's gone, right? They cut the dinghy away. There's only one way to reach land. Those who can swim, jump. The rest of you get on their backs or maybe float. We find verse 44, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. 276 people adrift in the Mediterranean Ocean in a violent storm brought safely to a dot on the map. Why? Because God's word said that's the way it would be. God committed to it. God's purpose is on display. Storms give us opportunity, church. Storms are an opportunity for you to witness for Jesus. It's an opportunity to put God on display. Every time things look really, really dark, what's Paul doing? My God will not abandon us. My God will bring salvation. My God will deliver. Again and again and again in the study of the book of Acts for 42 weeks now, we've seen the apostles in incredibly intense circumstances. In prison, under the sentence of death, stoned by angry mobs, delivered over for persecution. Now you see him in a shipwreck. Paul's going to see Caesar. 
to give a witness, and then he will be beheaded. Every single time these guys go through these times of persecution, it is never, never, never for who they are. They're really nice guys. They're very, very likable people. It's always for what they proclaim. Every single time, it's because they're a witness for Jesus. Every single difficulty that they go through is because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Just think this through with me as we wrap this up. Where did Jesus say they're gonna be his witnesses? In Jerusalem? Well, he said that 40 days after they crucified him. Really, we're going back to Jerusalem to witness for you? They just killed you. You're gonna be my witnesses in Judea. Really, the Jews hate you in Judea. You're gonna be my witnesses in Samaria. Really, because the Samaritans hate Jews. And the uttermost parts of the earth, that's, that's filled with pagans, God. See, it's really not about the apostles. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses because my word is gonna go forward. Because my word always goes forward. It will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purposes for which I sent it forth. See, Acts is really not about the apostles, as fascinating as they are. It's about the gospel. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the apostles triumphing in Acts. Next week when you open it up, you're gonna see Paul laying on a beach, but he's still in chains. He still has to stand before Caesar. There is victory in Acts, and the victory in Acts is the victory of God's word advancing because God's word never fails. Let me take you all the way back to this verse to wrap it up. Isaiah 55, 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. So if God made a promise to you, church, you can bank on If he said to you, I forgive you of your sins, can you depend on that? If he said you're gonna spend eternity with me in heaven, can you depend on that? That's your God. It always accomplishes what he said it will accomplish. Let me pray for you that you remember that this week. Lord God, I ask that as this church takes on this week, as these men and these women, these students go out into a watching world that you allow us to be a bold witness for you. Give us opportunity to bring glory to the, to the name of Jesus Christ. He's worth it. Father, we pray for all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Just two details before I let you go. You heard Michael mention Easter just a little bit ago when we started. There's a detail in your bulletin. Um, we recognize that because Easter is so largely attended, we had to do something to, to shift a little bit to fit everybody in this year. So if the 11 o'clock service is normally your service, look at your bulletin because it's gonna show you that on one weekend only, only on Easter weekend, the 11 o'clock service is actually gonna meet at 11.30, okay? So if you show up at 11 o'clock, you'll be nice and early for the Easter service, right? But you'll find a crowd of cars in the parking lot. So we've put all three services on one morning in order to fit everybody in to do it the way that we thought would work best. So please, please note that. And here's the second detail. You're aware that we've been talking about this piece of property up on M78 where we think is a viable place for the church to relocate to once we acquire enough funds to build a new building. 
but um, I wanted you to know that we've had discussions with the sellers of the property and we've come to terms of agreement on, on purchasing the property. However, in order to bring it before you for a vote, we, we needed to identify a specific date. So the weekend of March 20th, there will be a vote among the congregation. So when you come in, there will be ballots available for you to indicate your approval, hopefully, of, of the property and moving forward with it. So I'll send you a letter this week so you get some more information, some more details on it. And um, if you're not here the weekend of March 20th, there will be absentee ballots available to you in advance of that weekend, okay? All right, have a great week, New Hope.